O Father, hold us fast in the heavenly grip of the Savior, not by our own merit, Father, but by his sacrifice for us on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, freeing us from the curse of the law. O Father, we are not under the law, but under grace. Let us know the joy of your grace upon us and upon this church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, where, where shall we turn this morning? Is anybody bored yet? The series? Go to another letter? I, I, I see a couple heads shaking no, and no one else has an opinion, so <laughs> I guess we'll go on. Let's open to Romans chapter 8 once again. I'm going to focus on verses 5 through 11 this morning, and I will read whatever verses in that area that the Spirit of God prompts me to read. Begin with verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. O Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that by faith, The Spirit of God would be given to us and dwell in us, O Lord, and we pray we would be among those who the Apostle addresses as those who have the Spirit of God. We pray in your name, may your Spirit attend the preaching and exposition of this, your holy word. Amen. And so the Apostle begins with introducing to us this concept of the carnal mind. Verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind can't even decide to be subject to the law of God. It has no such power. It is limited. The carnal mind is a limited mind. Now, as we enter again into this compelling passage from this powerful chapter of Romans, we have some terms to define. And I I think I should say at the outset that Paul made a wonderful declaration at the beginning of this chapter. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And then he clarified, he said, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is my contention for you this morning that the rest of this chapter, and indeed perhaps the rest of most of the next few chapters, is Paul proving that declaration to be true. And I think that's what we have here. And so he's showing us why it must be true. It must be true that there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because it is wholly and entirely a work of God. Who could thwart it? And so much as we like to say what we did in order to come to Christ, the fact is that if we did it, there could still be condemnation. But God did it. That's the emphasis. He has made our minds subject to the law of God. Friends, like Paul, we don't hate the law. It was our tutor, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It is a beloved household servant who taught us the first things of the doctrines of Christ and the law of God. So the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God because it can't be. Remember from your... I don't know what grade you get this in school when they tell you the difference between may and can't. May and can. Or mayn't and can't. I recant. Forget about it. But no, they, there's a difference. May is you could will to or not to. And can't is you have no ability to. The carnal mind has no ability to subject itself to God and his demands. And that's what the apostle says here. So the, but let's look into this a little further. The, the verse begins with the word because. In other words, it's a continuation of the last few verses. And so we, we read last week, the previous two verses say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because, because why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. There is no peace with God so long as you retain the carnality of your birth, your natural birth. And so a first look into the passage should require that we come to an understanding of the comparison the apostle's making here. There's the natural mind, elsewhere called the carnal mind, elsewhere referred to as simply the flesh. And then there's the spiritual mind. From here we can see that the carnal-minded, the carnal-minded think a certain way, and the spiritually-minded think in a completely different way. And they think in a way that the carnal mind has no ability to think. You can think all the thoughts of your former carnality, but the carnal mind can't think yours. It's an added ability to the natural mind of man, the spiritual mind. And so, neither do these, each of these regard the same things with the same importance. Those who are carnally minded just, they're wondering why your religious devotion is so important to you. They just don't understand it. I mean, you got Sunday off. Take advantage. Get a cup of coffee. Read the times in your underwear. Do what you're supposed to do on Sunday mornings. They have no idea why you would get up early. Some people go out to breakfast on the way. They make a morning of it. 
They invite other people to go with them. We're going to the Lord's house. We're going to hear the word of the Lord today. And we're delighted. And then afterwards, we're going to sit around and eat some good food that somebody made and brought here. Several people this morning brought food. And then we're going to have all these magnificent arguments to show how smart we are. (laughs) And when everyone's all embroiled and confused, don't worry, I'm here, I'll come in, and I'll I'll square away all the disagreements. It's certainly true that the carnal-mindedness has certain limitations. Do you remember when you were carnally-minded? Some of you grew up in Christian households, and you don't have this terrible, wonderful past to look back on like some of us do. I remember thinking religious people were really stupid people. And I see atheists and agnostics today who still think that. And um, it's interesting because I love to talk to my old friends, and by and large, my old college friends are very smart guys, but very liberal and, and, and still carnally minded, and still in that place. Um, and so it's always, um, it, it's always a great challenge to try to get across a concept that only the carnal mind can understand. So it's certainly true that carnal mindedness has certain limitations. And friends, these limitations aren't small things. They're not merely incidental things. And they're not unimportant things. In fact, the differences, the things, the thoughts that we think as the spiritual-minded, are the most important thoughts that will matter. No one on his deathbed is going to say, I wish I did more overtime. Or I wish I told my boss off before I died. Or I wish I bought my wife a mink coat. Nobody's going to say that. I mean, the wife could be saying this, saying, I wish you bought me a mink coat. But the guy on the deathbed is not going to be saying that. The guy on the deathbed is going to say, I wish I gave more thought to God in eternity. There were people in my life who it seems to me now actually knew about these things. They're not small things. In fact, there'll come a time in your your life when they're the only things that matter. And I've been there a few times. When the only thing that matters are the promises of God. Everything else fades away and disappoints. I've told you about my relationship with this chapter. It brought me out of the depths, the hellish depths of my soul to the sublime celestial heights where God lives and where I'm promised to live with him because he blessed me to know that with a new mind. So they're not incidental, they're not accidental, they're not unimportant. But due to the inability of the carnal mind to ponder certain things, they are quite out of the realm of understanding to the carnal-minded. That's why your evangelism is difficult at times to even begin to engage the unsaved in a conversation. Isn't it difficult sometimes or you're at a situation where you're with unsaved people or unsaved friends and you really feel compelled to help these people out of that situation by giving them the only, giving them the only thing that can help them, which is the word of God and a promise, right? But it makes them uneasy to even talk about it. And they say, well, I don't know about those things. I know, that's why I'm here. Your evangelism is difficult at times because you're engaging a person with a mind that has no access to the concepts that are most important to you. 
The subject for him is unanswerable. The subject of eternity, to most people, they just think it's unanswerable. There's no authority on earth that can tell you what happens when you die. No one can tell you that. And because no one can tell you that, the subject's unimportant. We'll all find out when we get there. We certainly will. The consequences of eternity seem afar off. You know, i got to tell you, there comes a point in your life, it's an age, I think, or maybe after you've been afflicted a few times with troubles, there comes a point in your life where you don't feel invulnerable anymore. You feel like things can get me. I'm not immortal. Young people feel immortal. I used to. I used to tempt death. Really. I won't go into the particulars of that. I used to do things that were just dangerous because they were exciting. There's a whole cult of that going on. Have you noticed that? A shark bites your arm off and they make a documentary about you if you get back on the surfboard and go back out. That never made sense to me. How many body parts you want to feed to the shark? To show your bravery. I, I don't know. I don't get that kind of thing. I never got that. I saw this woman on a homemade ski with a thing because she had no legs. But she had to ski down like this huge mountain. I'm like, why? Don't you have a big screen TV? I mean, I watch these guys ski down mountains. And I can imagine that I could do that if I thought it was important. But I just, I mean, I just don't understand this kind of thing. But there comes a time in your life when all of a sudden, <laughs> my family's my biggest fan. <laughs> there comes a time in your life when you don't feel invulnerable anymore, where you know you're mortal, where things get you. I'm going to have to ask Daniel to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I gotta, I gotta uh, discipline my family. Karen and I quit skiing when we got married. We used to ski, but when you're in your own business and doing badly at it, and you need your body to get up in the morning and pay the mortgage, you give up certain things. One of them was skiing. <clears throat> Where was I? So what is the carnal mind? We ought to define it. It's here. He talks about it repeatedly. It's a repeated subject throughout the New Testament. Who are the double-minded? What is the, uh, what is the carnal mind? And, and who are the carnal-minded, I should say? Paul uses the term several times in the passage, so it behooves us to investigate its meaning. We can surmise the definition of the carnal mind from the text, right? We may say that it's a limited way of thinking. There's only certain thoughts the carnal mind can entertain itself with and set itself upon. Certain things are out of reach to it. The law of God, it can't be made subject to the law of God. It doesn't have the ability to. It can't be subject to the law of God. So we may say that it's a limited way of thinking. We may say that it's a temporal way of thinking. What do I mean? It's not eternal, it's in time. Most people just like to think about uh, the, the time, the immediate, the immediate moment. They don't really like to think about eternity. They might plan a little future, maybe, a, um, because everybody... See, today, eternal life has been replaced with a long life and quality of life and things like that. And believe me, those are all fine things. But 
It's a twinkling of an eye. Whatever life you live, however long you live, it's the twinkling of an eye when you look to the vast gulf, the throat of eternity, and see the endlessness of it. And you realize that your long life of 100 years was a spit in the wind and it was gone. So the carnal mind, who are the carnal minded? Paul uses the term several times, so we ought to look into it. We may say it's a limited way of thinking. It's a temporal way of thinking. It's not concerned with eternal things. And by that we mean that it has little regard for eternal reality. We all know that eternity is out there. Even people that think the world's being destroyed and um, you know the universes, the galaxies are collapsing and are going to be gone, something's still left. Time, eternity, something is still endlessly out there. What's out there? We don't even think those thoughts. The carnal mind doesn't really grasp them. And even if they do to some extent, they don't think they have anything to do with spiritual reality. They think it's all geological and cosmic and earthy and material reality. But rather it focuses on the here and now and things as they are. We may even go so far as to say that though the carnal mind of man is able to imagine things beyond its own reality, that it's totally unable to rest itself upon certainties with regard to eternal things. I know people that are glad to talk about certain philosophical maybes of life, but they will not focus their mind and say, I, I wholeheartedly believe this one. Why? Because they can't. The first trait we encounter with regard to the carnal mind is that it is enmity against God, Paul said. Enmity. If you don't know what enmity is, think enemy. If you are my enemy, you have enmity against me. Understand? If you're an enemy of God, you're at enmity with God, and that's what the apostle means. Your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your emotions are all offensive to God. You are his enemy. And so all men are born enemies of God. Do we understand that as a church? We're not born good until we commit our first sin. You know, it's been asked, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we, we sin? Well, both are true, but we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. We're unable not to. Adam was not born that way, however. But due to his sin, all his offspring are born at enmity. He chose death. He was given the choice and chose death. And so all of his offspring, which is us, are spiritually stillborn. We're born dead in trespasses and sin. So the carnally-minded person is the same person Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians as the natural man. Everyone that's undergone natural birth has a carnal mind, a natural mind. They're synonyms. The natural man has a natural mind. And since we're comparing carnal with spiritual, we may say that the spiritual mind is supernatural. It comes from somewhere outside of nature, right? We, we know its location. It comes from God through faith in Christ. But the spiritual mind is a supernatural, superimposed mind in the person. The carnal mind is dead. The spiritual mind is a gift of God. It's bestowed by God as a gift. It is the cure, friends. It is the remedy for the natural mind and the spiritual or supernatural mind 
comes upon a person at the moment of their spiritual rebirth. Well, when do you get this new mind? At the moment you believe in Christ. The moment you believe in Christ, you're, you're renewed in your mind. I'll develop that somewhat this morning. We may retain many thoughts and conclusions previously derived by our native carnality. In other words, we have to be taught. We have a new mind that has to be taught. I'm thinking, thinking of a very poignant Star Trek, Star Trek illustration that I may or may not use. But if you've seen some of the movies, you know that Spock goes back to the planet Genesis. He's destroyed, but he's reborn. And Spock had a magnificent brain, if you remember. His Vulcan brain was like a computer. But they had to reteach him. That's how your new mind is. You've got a new mind, a new genesis of thought, and it has to be retaught and reeducated. And what's in the way of that? Your old thoughts and your old education. Your old indoctrination gets in the way of that. So it's a process. That's why I say teaching is the first step of sanctification. The natural man has a natural mind, and since we're comparing carnal with spiritual, we may say that the spiritual mind is therefore supernatural. We may retain many thoughts and conclusions that we previously had, and so our newborn mind must be re-educated to learn the things of God that have been supernaturally available to us. Suddenly, there's worlds of knowledge that are available to us that we didn't previously know, and we don't get those all when we're saved, but we get the ability to understand them when we're saved. And before we're saved, we have no such ability. Why? Because we have the carnal mind. It's not subject to God, and it can't be. So how can we understand what... Um, or rather, we can now understand what we formerly could not. The new mind recognizes the authority of God that the old carnal mind rejected. The new mind recognizes the authority of God that the old carnal mind rejected. The old carnal mind didn't know there was an authority in the universe that spoke about spiritual realities, and they were absolutely true realities. They didn't even know, believe that concept. When we get to Romans 12, he'll talk about that. 12.2, he said, be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. And what does he say? That you might perfect your worship. The renewing of your mind is to perfect your worship of God. But we'll get there in chapter 12. It's only four chapters away. So it would not be wrong to conclude that the carnal mind of man imagines itself its own authority, right? People are so in love with their thoughts and their conclusions. And I'm going to tell you, when... Here's what happens when you, when you argue the faith with an unbeliever. For that matter, if you argue politics with a liberal, it's the same thing. Assume the well is not very deep. It generally is not on the other side. And so they bring up a premise. You knock down the premise demonstrably or authoritatively. And what do they do? You would think they'd concede the argument. You won the argument. But no, what do they do? They prop the same old premise back up and make you do it again. It's not like they have a well of other things to present to you. My contention this morning is the authority of God is not known by people, but it's suspected. They suspect that it's out there. That's why sometimes they're luring you in with their arguments because they want you to knock their arguments down. They're coming closer and closer to, to the knowledge of God. 
So the, the man of the carnal mind imagines his own authority. And the carnal man may put great emphasis upon his imagined ability to search and to know spiritual things. You ever have a spiritual talk with someone who is not saved? I'm assuming you have. What a dead end of, of nothing it becomes. From the apostle's description, the conclusions of the carnal mind regarding spiritual things will always be wrong conclusions. The carnal mind has no comprehension of spiritual reality. A carnal man can speak about spirituality. You ever talk to someone and they say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? Right? Well, there is a spirit world out there. Because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with powers and principalities in the heavenly places, right? So that, in a sense, that's a spirituality, I suppose, we can grant. But it's not something I would want to live for. But they say things like, I'm not religious, like you, but I'm spiritual. In other words, I don't need all the accoutrements that the body of Christ needs. First of all, I don't need Christ. I don't need scripture. I don't need truth. I may have told you I had an old aunt who was very spiritual. Um, she's still around. <laughs> and, uh, and I used to talk to her about spiritual things. And she said to me, I don't like Christianity because it's, it, it's intellectual. It's just about the written word. She knew that. But she thought that that was um, a bad thing about spirituality. Spirituality is on a different level, you see. It's not about words. It's about just concepts. It's about feelings, emotions. And she used to say, I sit out here in the woods. She lived in in narrow woods, and she says, I sit near this huge pine tree, and I meditate, and my thoughts become one with the tree. (laughs) One with the tree. Like that was a goal I should seek. I one with the tree. And I said, that's, that's, that's a point I would like to take up with you because my spirituality has led me to become one with the mind of Jesus Christ, who is God. I would rather be one with the God of the tree than of the tree itself. And can you imagine, I mean, this was thought to her as being, as being a real celestial place to be. I could almost smell the incense of her thoughts going up to the tree. So the carnal man may presume to know things beyond what he's capable of knowing. And we who are spiritually minded will know that his conclusions are wrong. Friends, what have I just done? I have ridiculed every other religion and belief system that is out there. I have done that. But I want you to know something. Every religion claims uh, exclusivity of authority. The Jewish religion claims it's authoritative and ours is false. The Muslim religion claims Allah is authoritative and our religion is false and our God is false. In fact, in in their view, we're polytheists because we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are three gods, they say to us. God cannot have a son because God does not have sex. I've heard these kinds of things. um, So all, all that to say, while I disparage the veracity of other belief systems, they also claim exclusivity. All right, Nobody's innocent in this. So we who are spiritually minded will know that the conclusions of the carnal minded are wrong conclusions. They're wrong because they have no access to authentic spiritual truth. Right? You shall know the truth 
and the truth shall set you free. It's not you shall develop a good opinion, a wise saying, and your opinion and your saying will set you free. You know what's interesting about, about the, uh, the carnal mind is it, it generally refers to no authority. It's, a ver- it's authority averse. We love that there's an authoritative voice that speaks to us that can't be wrong. They think that's a bad thing. The carnal mind won't receive that. We can go to other passages in order to understand Paul's reference to the carnal mind of man. Since the carnally minded have no access to spiritual realities and therefore cannot know God, they're the very ones Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he, where he wrote, the message of the cross is foolishness to them. Right? The message of the cross is foolish to the carnal minded. Elsewhere, Paul wrote that the things we regard as important, the carnal-minded regard as foolishness. Why do you suppose that when you speak to your unsaved friends and your liberal-minded friends about gospel truths, they're skeptical, even scornful of them? It's because they regard such things as foolish. And it's not that they regard religion in general as foolish. As I said, there's a lot of people running around saying, I'm very religious or I'm very spiritual and know nothing about the God they think they might possibly by accident worship. There's a lot of people going into houses of worship today who are just hoping that worship breaks out when they get there. Right? It's all accidental or incidental. It's like a friend of mine said, I went to a fight the other night and a hockey game broke out. You know, it wasn't intentional, but you went there. It was like, you don't go to the hockey game for the fight, right? You go to the hockey game for hockey, but isn't it exciting when the fight breaks out? That's how we approach worship, it seems to me, among this carnal minded today. You go into the house of worship and you just hope something really cool happens. But no, we come together and we... And we worship in a way prescribed by God. We proclaim his word. We sing praises to him. We partake of the sacraments. We do things that our authority tells us will bring us closer to him and produce grace in us. And so your unsaved friends become skeptical even about the conversation. It's because they regard such things as foolish. And it's not that they regard religion in general as foolish. Some may be said to be sincerely devout religious people. We have a lot of those in our family. I'm presuming a lot of you have those. Um, But when it comes right down to the crux of the matter, it's always the blood of Christ. They cannot rest their minds upon it as the ultimate path to truth and wisdom. You see, the carnally minded are only capable of trusting in worldly conclusions. There's always this looming problem with regard to divine, divine authority and the source of the written word. The carnally minded may profess to love God. They may say they are Christians. They even may say they read the word of God. But the test is truly whether or not they regard the sovereignty of God in the totality of life. That's a Francis Schaeffer um, paraphrase. Regard Regard the sovereignty of God in the totality of life. Some people say, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm religious because I did this religious exercise this week. Now I'm going to go off and live my life as I want to. The Christian can't do that. Only the carnally minded can do that. Because our whole life is dedicated to God, not just the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the, is the one in seven 
commitment of corporate worship, but the rest of the other six days, we are in worship to God individually. Our every thought is to be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's not so with the carnal mind. The carnal mind dabbles in religious devotion, in religious tradition, but has not committed himself to God. Why? He can't. The Bible says very plainly that he can't. They can't regard the sovereignty of God in the totality of life. Is God truly the Lord over their lives? Is he Lord over their thoughts, over their desires? And if they're merely young in the word, how receptive are they to godly counsel demonstrated by the pointing out of God's directives enshrined in the written word? Friends, if you are really spiritually minded, you would crave godly counsel. You would consider it before God, and you would take it. I find there's a great lack of that in the church. I've had people say to me, Oh, pastor, if I ever go to stray, astray, I want you to let me know. As soon as I let him know, he's not happy about it. Right? You're going astray. How can you judge me? You've got to be careful in not falling into that. You ought to at least consider what a brother says about your walk. The spiritual mind should receive godly counsel gladly. The spiritual mind loves spiritual truth. The spiritual mind recognizes the word as the mind of God and rejoices. Isn't it great when you have something going on in your life and a brother comes up to you with a, um, with a verse he's memorized or he knows where it is and he turns to it and it speaks right to your situation and you can take it as God speaking to you? The spiritual guy can't do that. He has no text. So I think it's a great mistake, uh, as some do, regard this passage as speaking about two types of Christians, the spiritual and the carnal. I don't get that. I, I think the context disallows that. But I know it's a popular teaching out there today. That the carnally minded are some Christians who haven't made, God, have made Jesus their Lord. They just made him their Savior. Truth is, you don't make him anything. He is what he is. He's Lord and Savior, you take him or you don't take him. It's like, why are you doing that? I thought you were a Christian. Well, I, I took him as my Savior, so I got my fire insurance. But I don't take him as my Lord. And someday maybe I'll, I'll get to that place. But right now I just do my own thing. And think, thankfully I'm saved by, by Christ. And people actually really believe that. That is not what we're talking about here. There are not carnal Christians and, um, and spiritual Christians. There are just Christians. And if you... If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not His. All right, so the carnal man is not a, a believer. He's a man unconvinced and therefore unconverted or yet to be converted. As of yet, he does not hold to the truth of Scripture and the authority of the written word for his life. And I think the rest of the sermon will demonstrate that fact. Such people regard themselves as wise. I talk about it a lot. I talk about the media. I talk about uh, watching certain news shows on TV, and they have all these heads that are all in these boxes, and they all have something very, very wise to say. And when the other wise man is speaking, they're like this. You know, because they know they're among the wisdom, the wisdom of the world. You know, the professing to be wise people who God says became fools, and media demonstrates that every day. And so that I must say, in many respects, they provide a great imitation of wisdom. It's sometimes impressive. You hear these explanations and you realize 
that was pretty well said. It's totally devoid of any spiritual truth, but that's a pretty well... And that's, that's, the, that's the power of satanic influence on our lives. It seems smart in the moment. But can mere carnal human wisdom reason for itself the nature and purposes of God? People do it all the time. They say such things as, and, and I was reading Lloyd-Jones this week, and he, he went off on this whole concept where people say, well, my God is totally a God of love. He would have nothing to do with wrath. You know, so they sort of pick and choose attributes and sort of build their own God structure. He's loving. He's full of grace. He's nice. He would never judge anyone. He would certainly never hurt anyone. Um, and he would certainly not send anyone to hell. So all of those things are out, and they build for themselves a God. And it seems very wise to them. But Paul wrote this, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Let's try to remember, Paul lived in the great one of the great centuries of secular philosophy, right? Plato, Aristotle were enshrined as wise men, right? And they had some wise things to say, which the carnal mind uh, can grant. I call it the glory of man. It's, just, it's sort of like Job's friends. They had some pretty wise things to say. God shunned it all. God shunned it all. I'll tell you why. He will not be figured out. He will not be second-guessed. You will know him by faith and revelation and by no other means. You will not just figure him out. You'll not just add up the attributes and say, that's God. That's a creation. You'll either take what he gives you of himself or not. So some people regard themselves as wise, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You know, I got to say, I understand what he means by the foolishness of the message preached. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable that you can be so embroiled and born and, and acculturated to a sinful lifestyle, and you hear a story about a man born to a virgin who lived his life in the presence of God, who exhibited the power of God, and then they finally killed him, put him on a cross, and he forgave them. And somehow, that can change your whole life. It's kind of a, quote, if Paul didn't say it, I wouldn't say it. Foolish thing. That that's the way you get saved. You don't just get convinced by, you know, you got the whiteboard out with the, with the hierarchy of, uh, of attributes, and you just learn them, and now you know about uh, divine nature. It isn't like that. It's revealed really through a story told. And for decades it was told before it was written down. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So how does a person become spiritually minded? There must be a way because Paul says of his readers that they are spiritually minded. We know that they weren't born that way, so how do you get there? Verse 9, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So there it is. The conversation or rather the conversion of the carnal mind to the spiritual mind, is an act of the Spirit of God. God does an operation on you. That's how it happens. It can't happen another way. You can't say, well, I, I'm going to take into account all that you've said about Christ. I'm going to go home and think about it and see what I think about it, and, and maybe I'll come out a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Great study doesn't get you the spiritual mind. 
God must do a work upon a person if he's to be converted to spiritual mindedness. The Holy Spirit literally takes up residence in the mind and heart of the life of the new believer. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Spirit of Christ, he's called in the text, lives in us. Friends, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. I hear people say, oh, I knew this Christian. He was possessed by the Holy Spirit if he's a Christian. He can't be possessed by anything else. There's no demon in hell to go into a Christian when God was in there. It just doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the mind and heart of the new believer. He's suddenly there. And the suddenness of it is so miraculous and wonderful. Once he arrives, friends, he never departs. Once he's there, he's there to stay. You can't chase him away. Which is why the apostle, the apostle refers to him as the guarantee of our inheritance with God. You know, it's called, in Calvinist theology, it's called irresistible grace. When God presents himself really as he is, you have no power to resist. I know you like to think you have a little decision moment. You know, if you prayed that prayer with us, we believe you got born again. Um, friends, it's not really quite that simple. It's really not quite that simple. It, if God presents himself to you by the Spirit... Now, I'm not saying the preacher can preach and the Spirit may or may not attend. I'm going to talk about that this morning. But there's always something going on when there's preaching going on, something spiritual going on. But you can't just decide. When the Spirit enters into you, you you're born again, and you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God, Jesus said to Nicodemus. So the Spirit has to do a work upon you. God must do a work upon a person if he's to be converted. The Holy Spirit literally takes up residence in your heart and mind. Once he's there, he never departs, which is why the apostle says he's our guarantee. He's a guarantee, friends. Not like the one you get at Lowe's that you pay 89 extra dollars for and they forgot about it when you bring the generator back. Another story. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, is God. God did the work, who, is also, who also has sealed us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Read the fine print. You've got a guarantee. That's not an operation we may perform on ourselves. God is the master surgeon of the heart. Remember Ezekiel? Remember Ezekiel said these words? Or God said through Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Remember he said that? If not, go back and read that. Ezekiel's full of wonderful visions and illustrations. God said, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's an operation. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. He didn't say, and hope you agree to walk in my statutes. He said, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. God's statutes are the statutes the Spirit of God would obviously walk in. And you will keep my judgments and do them, he said. That's the nature of the regenerate person, the spiritual minded. God puts his law in you and you obey it. Remember this from last week? What the law could not do, God did. In the next chapter we read, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. 
In other words, it's not of him who decides or him who tries. It's all of God. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. God very famously hardened Pharaoh's heart, and I've got no end of Christians who are offended by that. How can you hold Pharaoh accountable for his sin if you hardened his heart? And what does he say? Who are you? To answer back to me. Now that's not to say he has no explanation for that. It's just he didn't like the way you asked the question. What the law could not do, God did. The agent of conversion is always God. The means of conversion is the word preached. And the operation of conversion is revelation. Zechariah said, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Intensive study will not give you a spiritual mind, friends. Devout religious exercise cannot achieve it. Strict moral codes cannot earn it or convert the mind of man. That's why God said as much to the wise of this world. To the Corinthians, he said, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Friends, someday all this pretend wisdom will be gone. And you won't have to wonder what it is anymore. How true is it? I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the message preached to save those who believe. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. This was at the height of intellectual achievement in the ancient world. All the ancient philosophers were there. All the architects who who mastered the arts of physics and science and geometry and astronomy, and they built these magnificent structures. It's all the glory of man. It looks really good, but eventually the glory of man comes to ruin. That's what the glory of man is called. We only know the glory of man by its ruins. We have to dig in the dirt to find not the glory, the former glory. There's always a former glory of man. God's glory does not expire. God simply will not be figured out. If he's known at all, it's by revelation. There are no accidental Christians, and if you're a believer, and if you're a believer, it's the work of God that made you a believer. So how does a man receive a new mind, a spiritual mind? How does a man progress beyond his own natural human understanding? It's by revelation. Friends, everything you know of God is because he revealed it to you. And revelation comes through preaching. The foolishness of preaching, Paul said. If you're saved, it's because God spoke to you. Preaching is the power of God unto salvation. Some preaching saves, and some just convicts and doesn't save. I'll give you two examples. Both from the the book of Acts. The first is Peter preached at Pentecost. You remember this. They came down the from the upper room, and they started preaching, and people were getting saved. And um, we read this. Now, when they heard this, Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart. Remember that phrase, because in the New King James, it's, it's very important. 
They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, we have been made available to God's mercy by the preaching that Peter gave them. And Peter goes on to tell them about repentance and baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the, and the hearers submit and are summarily saved. Right? So they are cut to the heart unto salvation. Now when Stephen preached in Acts 7, the hearers were also cut to the heart, the text says. What well, we get a completely different reaction here. When they heard these things, I'm quoting from Acts 7, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. A little bit different than what must we do to be saved. So the Holy Spirit convicts to conversion and convicts to condemnation. So how does a man receive a new mind? It begins by preaching, but it ends with the work of the Holy Spirit. In both cases, however, the Spirit is said to have worked. In the case of Peter, he worked by convicting the hearers of sin and saving them. In the case with Stephen, he worked by filling Stephen and not the hearers. Stephen's preaching fell on deaf ears except his own. And then we read, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we read, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Holy Spirit worked. It, it, it did the job God intended it, for it to do. It condemned the hearers. Sometimes the word of God converts, sometimes not. So the carnal mind is dispelled only by enlightening of the mind by the Holy Spirit in response to the proclamation of truth. For eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. By revelation, that's how you get the spiritual mind. God has revealed them to us through the operation of the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit teaches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned, and his mind is left carnal. So the natural man, by natural means, cannot know God. Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul wrote to Timothy about this. He said, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And then he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Bodily exercise profits a little. Right? We do depend on our bodies to carry around our spirits, don't we? I mean, it's kind of a convenient way of doing it. You know, put the spirit in a body, have them go around, drive cars, right? Hopefully the body stays in good enough shape to drive your car to church, to walk down the aisle, sit in your seat, 
Bodies are important, but it's not all about the body. Your body was born with a death sentence. And so is your spirit for that matter. But your spirit by faith in Christ escapes the sentence. The body, not so much. A pure piece of evidence that the carnal mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God is the exercise craze of our current times. We're so concerned about long life, we've thoroughly forgotten about eternal life, it seems to me. Responsible stewardship of our bodies is a good thing. But it is the goal of the carnal mind to prepare for long life. It's the goal of the spiritual mind to prepare for eternal life. There is a difference, right? So exercise is good, but it's not the ultimate good, right? We think that um, wealth is good, but not the ultimate good. Health is good, but not the ultimate good. Eternal life is the ultimate good, right? Long life is good, exercise is good, so long as we do not lose sight of our first love and spiritual reality. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul wrote to Corinth. Even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man's being renewed day by day. You really start to see, as you go along in years, that the outward man is perishing. We like to say, hey, he looks pretty good for his age. <laughs> People always say to me, hey, um, you, look, um, you look pretty good. How old are you? I say, 87. <laughs> wow, you look really good. You see how it's relative? I don't want to look like I'm 66. I want to look like I'm 39. But isn't the ultimate good? You know, a handsome pastor is good, but it's not the ultimate good. Our bodies are a gift, friends. Jesus was merciful enough to heal them throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus cared about our bodies. And we still pray to him all the time. And we praise him when we get healing. We're to worship him with our whole being. And the apostle will teach on this in chapter 12 again where he writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You can't worship without your body. He wants your body to worship him. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I'm going to treat that when I get to Romans 12. And so our bodies are a gift, friends. Jesus was merciful enough to heal them throughout his life in the earth. And I'm going to ask you, make sure your body gets you to worship, to the worship service on the Lord's Day. Only your body can get you here, so take care of it. And it would be nice if your bodies would come on time, and even better if they would take care of your bodily needs before to minimize disruptions to the worship. It would be nice if your bodies did all those things. My mother was very, I must be very old-fashioned. We would go down the street in the car, and she'd say, did you go to the bathroom? Get in there and go. I'm like, I don't have to. Get in there and go. I'm not pulling over. I mean, she wouldn't even disrupt a car ride for your bodily needs. Make certain your body brings you to worship, to service, worship service rather on the Lord's Day, and it would be nice if your bodies got you there on time Friends, your glands and your organs are wonderful servants, but they make poor masters. You master them. Follow? Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. So I said your spirit goes on to be with God or go somewhere else, right? 
and your body goes into the earth. But that's not the end of the story. Let your informed spirit lead your uninformed body through this life. And though we're very attached to our bodies and our bodies to us, we'll have to face the fact of physical death. The Holy Spirit does save us. Our spirits will eternally be found in the presence of God. When we die, our spirits go to God. Your spirit goes directly to God. Your spirit doesn't sleep in the grave. All right, that's called soul sleep. The scripture dispels that. That's a belief of some of the the Christian cults, the soul sleep. Another one's annihilationism. When you die, everything's done. Your soul, you just annihilated. There's no hell. You're gone. Also, um, a great heresy. Paul wrote this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, you know the tent maker calling his body a tent, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, I know I do, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us his spirit as a guarantee. He says this all over the place about this guarantee. So we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. In other words, friends, the goal, we walk by faith, not by sight, but that's not the goal. The goal is to walk by sight and to outlive the need of faith. You're in the presence of God now. Keep in mind that Jesus was raised bodily. And it was one of the primary teachings of the gospel with regard to the resurrection. It was demonstrated by the risen Christ to the disciples. Jesus had a body that was risen. Remember Thomas doubted? The doubting Thomas. So the Lord, Thomas said, well, I won't believe that he's... I won't believe you guys, his brethren who knew Christ very well. He says, I'm not going to believe you till I see him and I put my hand in the wounds. And I expect the, the wounds. So Jesus suddenly appears. What was that you were saying? <laughs> reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now I have to tell you, every now and then I stop because... I have had a personal relationship with this verse, so I have to tell you my personal relationship with this verse. I was sitting at home one day on my porch many years ago, and I had just worked out. <laughs> I have a heavy bag in the backyard, or I did till last week when Everett and I cut it down, took it to the dump, it was waterlogged. But I was working out, and I came up on the porch, and I had a towel, and I had my Bible. And my Bible was on a little stool that I put my feet on, so I was cooling off, and I took the towel, and I threw it over the Bible, and just then, the Jehovah's Witnesses walked up to the house. And they said to me, there was this young, there were two Hispanic women, very nice ladies, and the young one was very cute, and you know how they do it, the disciples learning how to do it, and she has the older one to to coach and to direct. So the young girl came, and she said, 
um, you know, as, as if I didn't know who they were, and they had the, the magazine, and, and she came up and said, we are just going around and telling people to read their Bibles. And I said, that's great. I took the towel up, I said, because that's what I'm doing. I'm reading my Bible. And I said, but I understand that the difference between my view of Jesus Christ and yours is that I believe he's God, and you believe he's just a man. And she said, yes, that's what we believe. And I said, well, what do you think about when Thomas put his hand into the Lord's side and he realized it was the Lord because he felt his body and he fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. And she said, well, that was just uh, Thomas saying, oh, my God. In other words, Thomas was taking the Lord's name in vain in the presence of the Lord while he was revealing himself. How can you believe that? And they went to see the neighbors. (laughs) Who just didn't answer the door. I believe in answering the door when that happens. So that's my personal relationship with that verse. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In other words, your bodies come back and they get glorified just like Jesus' body came back and got glorified by God. But you have the Spirit of God who dwells in you, friends. He's the guarantee of your salvation and the resurrection of your body. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, body and spirit. Father, in Jesus' name, communicate these truths to your people today with your glory present with it. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would show himself to us in palpable ways in our walk throughout this week, that we might be blessed of you, O Lord, to do all the things incumbent upon us as the Lord's special flock. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, Stephen.